When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you find yourself at dinner, and you, if you're sitting next to a man, it's probably somebody else's husband whose wife's in hospital, or it's somebody who's single for a very good reason, like he's just awful. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Changes with me, Annie McManus. Hi guys, I'm coming to you from Ireland. I'm actually sitting in a little window chair in my hotel room in Dingle, which is a town near the most southwesterly tip of Ireland. Like there's nothing between here and America, basically, apart from ocean. And it's beautiful and remote and rugged. And I've been here for four days now and I'm already about half a stone heavier from the Guinness and as you can hear my voice is hoarse from all the shouting in pubs and I sound really Irish because that's what happens when I go to Ireland but I've had a wonderful time and it's really nice to have a bit of time to reflect on the year and on changes and what a series it's been I feel so proud of the conversations we've been able to bring you on this series and I'm just so excited for who we've already got for next season we've got loads of conversations um, set to record before the end of the year so I feel like we're on a real roll now and it's just lovely to hear from you and hear that you're enjoying the podcast it never stops surprising me you know when I hear from people I DJ'd with the Chemical Brothers last week and after the set Ed Chemical turned around to me and was like I really love the podcast and I was like wow this is amazing so yeah I'm really chuffed and um, so so excited to bring you the guest this week so Pruleith is a living fucking legend right it's this is indisputable I will fight you if you disagree with me she is 81 years old but she has such a kind of joy de vivre she lives life as if she's still 18 she's just got this sense of mischief this sense of fun this kind of sense of optimism about her she's very curious and she makes me look forward to being in my 80s She's one of those people who symbolises the very best of kind of getting to old age. So you'll know Prue probably as one of the judges on the Great British Bake Off. You'll know her for her funky glasses and her funky jewellery and her incredible looks. But she's also a novelist, a formidable businesswoman, a restaurateur. Like her achievements are, it's actually obscene. There's also a brand new TV show called Prue's Great Garden Plot, in which she and her husband John, very late in life, decide to build an entirely new house from scratch and a whole new garden. And it's hilarious and it's cute. One of my favourite scenes is Prue and John sat on a bench in a cherry orchard at dusk saying, oh, well, this is lovely, isn't it? And then just Prue turns to John and says, all we need now is a margarita, darling. (laughs) That kind of sums her up right there. So yes, there's lots to talk about with Prue in terms of her journey. It's kind of endless, the amount of changes she's gone through, but I really like the ones we decide to focus on in this conversation. And as I was researching Prue and learning more and more things about what she's done, I realised that there's a really lovely link to her and this podcast. You see, a while back, we had an artist called Alison Lapper on the podcast. She got a lot of attention when she appeared in sculpture form on the fourth plinth of Trafalgar Square. It was Mark Quinn's sculpture 
sculpture and he sculpted her pregnant. Now, Alison was born without arms and with shortened legs. So seeing her kind of pregnant on this plinth was hugely striking and hugely beautiful. And that only existed, that sculpture on that plinth in the first place because of a campaign that Prue Leith kind of headed up. She kind of came up with it and she saw it through. And that campaign was to be able to put contemporary sculpture on that empty plinth in amongst, you know, a whole square of traditional conservative kind of, you know, military figures and naval heroes to be able to put contemporary sculpture in there was really fresh and and really kind of progressive. And it kind of sums Prue up, really. So I asked Prue about that sculpture at the start and her part in it all. And you're going to hear the rest right now. Enter the podcast, Prue Leith. And do you know, Annie, I think that that was still, I mean, that was, we started that program, I don't know, 15 years ago or 10 years ago or something. And that Alison Lapper sculpture is still the best one we've ever had. It was just mm. magical. I mean, when you saw it from, she was, she's sitting almost like a Buddha, you know, she doesn't have legs, but she looks as if she's got crossed legs, you know, like a Buddha would sit. Mm. And if you come up Whitehall and you saw the statue from a distance, it's marble, white anyway. But it was the most wonderful, beautiful statue. And then as you got closer, you realised that this woman, who is very beautiful anyway, and the sculpture is fantastic. And she had a sort of calmness that was magic. And then you realise that she's pregnant. And you get a little closer and you realise she has no arms and no legs. And I think that that was the most wonderful thing for the public to see because... You know, we did this a long time ago and, and I think things have got a little bit better for disabled people or people with any kind of difference. But Alison Lapper, she just looked so content and so calm and so beautiful. It, I just think it made people think differently about um, people who have, you know, no arms and no legs. So that's just one little kind of zoomed in thing that you have been involved in and kind of helped make happen in your career. Most people right now, if I said your name, will know you from doing Bake Off. I mean, it's been four years doing Bake Off. I mean, the the, the kind of mass public. Um, Obviously, you've written seven novels, 12 cookbooks. You've been a restaurateur. You've been a food columnist for four different national newspapers, prolific on TV, 13 honorary degrees or fellowships from UK universities, OBE, CBE, bloody DBE. I mean, it's just endless, endless. Your career has been so rich and varied. You've seen so much change over your life. You've been an agent of it and, you know, you've been someone who has been affected by it, of course. What does that word change mean to you? Well, do you know what? I actually think, and this sounds rather smug because I've been able to do this and obviously not everybody is but I think the best thing is to change your have a revolution in your life every 20 or 25 years and do something completely different I've never understood why you were supposed to do the same thing all your life why would you if you can change and if you could be interested in more than one thing I think it does make your life more fun and you meet more different people and I've had in a way, I mean, I spent the first 25 years of my life in the cooking trade, restaurants, I opened a cookery school, I wrote a lot of cookbooks, and I just was absolutely obsessed with food. And then I decided, you know what, I really want to write novels. So then for the next 25 years, I wrote novels. 
and then an autobiography and did a lot more journalism. And then I started to, because I had had a very successful business, I was invited to sit on a lot of boards as a non-executive director. And so I got a real insight into big business. And, you know, I, I was on the Safeway and the, and the Halifax and Whitbread and Woolworths, lots of, lots of boards. And, and that was fascinating. Not always satisfactory, but always very, very interesting. And then I thought, right, that's enough of that. I'll, um, and so I, I had done a little bit of television in my early days and not really liked it. But then I started again and, and, and I went on to the Great British Menu as a judge. And that led to this one, the Great British Bake Off. Unfortunately, I don't have another 25 years to do something completely different. If I did have another 25 years to live, then I'd like to campaign for the things I care about, which I do anyway, but I'm not going to see them fulfilled because I won't be here. Such as, I'm, I'm very keen on, I, I don't know if you know the charity Dignity in Dying, which is all about trying to make sure people have a, a, as good a death as they can. And most of us don't have a good death because um, we're not allowed to have any help to see us off. And I think we ought to be able to choose the time of our dying. And um, what we're asking for is that people who are um, about to die, you know, they've been diagnosed, you know, they've, they've got less than six months to live. If they want to um, die, they can ask a doctor to help them. You know, I think it would be really good. And my brother had a horrible death. My, my husband had a horrible death. So I want to, um, you know, I just think it, I, 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 I feel very strongly whose who's life is it anyway. Mm. Yeah, it feels wrong that someone else is making a decision for the person in question when it's, it's their life. Uh, that was one of the things I really wanted to ask you about today, actually, was death. And, you know, the idea of how taboo it is in general for people to talk about it, for people to talk about how they would like to die. Isn't it? I mean, we yeah. don't talk about it. Nobody talks about death because nobody wants to think about it. And I'm the same, you know. I, I mean, I think if we had any sense, we'd, we would be thinking about um, we don't want to have the last few weeks and months of a horrible death. But at the moment, um, you know, it's illegal to, you know, stack up enough morphine to kill yourself. You can actually legally commit suicide, but you can't legally ask somebody to help you to do it. Which means if you're in hospital and you're really weak and you're in no position to commit suicide, but you're having a horrible time and you're in constant pain, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't allow a dog to suffer that kind of agony. Mm. We would put them out of their misery. I want to ask you now about your childhood change, the kind of biggest impact change that happened to you when you were a child or a teenager. I was brought up in South Africa, you know, really privileged white South African, lovely family, very, you know, we just had a lovely childhood. And then when I was six, we came to England, which was just after the war. And I remember being amazed. at I mean, it was a huge change. It was freezing cold. We arrived in the winter in February. 
And I couldn't believe how cold it was. And I couldn't believe how, you know, I mean, rationing was really, really tough in 1946. It was actually worse after the war than it was during the war. And um, I remember going to the grocers and my, we, we had, there were five of us in the family, my two brothers and me and my parents. And we were allowed one egg a week each. So there were five eggs in a, in a paper bag. And we came home with these five eggs and my brother was carrying them very carefully because that was, you know, it was a real treat. We would have boiled eggs on, you know, one night a week. And um, he was carrying these eggs and one of the eggs must have been cracked because it sogged up the bottom of the packet and all the eggs fell out onto the um, tiled floor just outside our house. And um, we all just stood there all five of us, absolutely horrified, as if this was a major tragedy. And I remember also walking down um, Edgware Road with my sweet ration. My, my, we never had sweets as, as children before, so one of the good things about coming to England was because there was a ration for sweets, my mother would buy them, not wanting to waste her ration coupons. But we'd never had sweets before, or not or very, very seldom. So we're walking down Edgware Road with this packet of toffees, you know, I don't know, about a quarter of a pound of toffees or something. And we passed these German prisoners of war who were digging the <coughs> trenches along Edgware Road. I don't know what the trenches were about, but anyhow, the German prisoners of war were in the, in the ditch working. And my mother said, um, offer the poor prisoners a, um, one of your sweets, you see. So I've held out my bag of sweets to this um, chap, and he took the whole bag. <gasps> no. And I remember being absolutely horrified. And I set, you know, I was six, so I set up a whale. And my mother was absolutely furious with me. She said, "Just think how terrible it is. They're away from home. They're all by themselves. They've been, they're in prison. They just think about some other people for a change. You can do without the sweets." <laughs> she wasn't at all comforting. She gave me hell. <laughs> well, I was going to ask about your mum and your mum and dad. So they, they were quite liberal people, were they? They were very liberal. I mean, South Africa was full. Was had apartheid at the time, so I mean, it was extraordinary. And of course, I I didn't find it extraordinary because I'd been brought up with it. So it didn't see. I mean, it seems to me shocking now that I that I wasn't horrified that our nanny had to sit at the back of the bus when we were in the bus. White people sat in the front of the bus and the nanny had to sit in the back of the bus. If we sat on a park bench, she wasn't allowed to sit on it because the bench would be for, um, you know, white people only. And if I walked down the, you know, when I was a teenager, I'd walk down the street with a whole lot of giggling girls and some venerable old man, black man, would get off the pavement and walk in the gutter to let us ridiculous girls pass. And it, it never occurred to me that this was absolutely monstrous. In spite of the fact that my mother had campaigned against South... She was an actress, and she campaigned against apartheid all the time because she wanted black actors to be allowed to um, perform on the stage with white... I mean, she wanted to have a black actor play Othello, for example. She had a Shakespearean company, and she wanted black audiences to be allowed to come in at the same time as white audiences. And and so on. And she came to England to persuade the writers' union to allow their play not to boycott South Africa when about their plays, because she believed 
that you shouldn't burn the books, that, that if you had a good play about human rights and so on, it would make more impression than, than burning the books, you know, not, let, not, not allowing people to see the plays. So she was a real campaigner. But it, it still shocked me that um, I was so... When I got to France and I realised what a really liberal country is um, in the matter of race, I mean, we were in... I was in, at the Sorbonne at university and so we would be on the left bank and, and I, I remember the first time I sat in at a cafe table on the left bank and a couple of Algerian lads came and sat down next to me and I'd never sat and talked to a black person as an equal and as a, a friend or, a, you know, uh, at first I didn't know what to say, you know, and then of course very quickly realised they were just like everybody else and interesting and a couple of Moroccan guys became great friends and th that was amazing. I mean, we'd had, I'd had very good relations with our, the only, with only black people I knew, but they were all servants. You know, they were our cook or our butler or our, mm. you know, something like that. Mm. I heard you talk, tell this story about when you went to France and you discovered cooking and then you came back to your cook um, in your childhood home and kind of went to go and, and show him all the things that you'd learned. Can you, can you tell us that? Well, we had this wonderful cook called Charlie. And it's true that I could have learned to cook at his apron strings if it had occurred to any of my family that I would be, be a cook. But I didn't know I'd be a cook. I mean, my mother was an actress, so I went to university to be an actress, you know, and then I changed my mind and did a hundred different other things. But cooking was not one of the things that it occurred to me. I just liked food. And food, good food just arrived on the table because Charlie was a terrific cook. And when I came back from France and I realised that cooking was, you know, a real skill and it was fun to do and I'd, I'd learnt a little bit about cooking from the... because I was au pair with a French family. And I came back and I wanted to, I wanted to make a seafood pancake. So I got all the, you know, I got, got all the ingredients and I set about trying to do it. And, I made, and the thing was, the seafood pancake had to have a hollandaise sauce on the top. And I hadn't realised how difficult it is to make hollandaise sauce, and I curdled a lot. And Charlie, he could have helped me, but he just cleared up after me and, you know, did the washing up and, and so on. And then I suddenly watched him, and I, he was helping me chop, chop the herbs or something, and I suddenly realised he was chopping like, a, like I'd seen people do in Paris. And I realised he could do it, and then I asked him about the hollandaise and he told me how to rescue it, which actually meant taking another couple of eggs and then adding the curdle mixture to it. But he, he actually rescued it and I, I thought, you know, I could have learned to cook at home. So just trying to get the chronology, so you went to France to university and then did you go to, did you go to London after that? Yes. I wanted to go to the Cordon Bleu in Paris, but it was too expensive. So I went to London and um, sort of... I slightly bluffed my way into into doing the advanced course in London because I hadn't done any cooking really, um, very little, only a bit with my au pair lady. And they said, you can't do the advanced course unless you've done our beginners and intermediate course or unless you've worked in a restaurant. And so they said, have you ever worked in a restaurant? And I said, yes, I worked in a restaurant in Paris, which was true, but what I didn't say 
was that I had been carrying the plates and washing the dishes. <laughs> never been in it. I'd never cooked. <laughs> so that was a bit of a white lie. In fact, it was probably a black lie. Uh, but I got in. And at the Cordon Bleu, they used to put, make us in partners. You know, there, there was two of you cooked together. And my partner, happily, was the most amazing woman who had a... She already had a cafe that made very good cakes. But she wanted to learn to make some savoury stuff because she wanted to turn her cafe into a restaurant. So that's why she was there. And I was quite good at savoury stuff because that's what I'd cooked in Paris with my au pair lady. And so she did all the cakes and I did all the savoury stuff, more or less. And we did really well together. So that was fine. But it does mean that I'm not the best baker. Everybody thinks I must be a fantastic baker because I'm on <laughs> Bake Off. I'm not. I'm a fantastic set of taste buds. That's what I am. I'm really good judge. <laughs> I would hate to actually do the competition because I probably wouldn't. Paul would be able to win it. I wouldn't be able to win it. So Prue... You went to the Cordon Bleu School. You started your first enterprising in, in catering in the 60s and grew and grew and grew. You were a restaurateur, owning one of the hottest restaurants in London during a really exciting period in history as well. I wanted to ask you just about the business aspect of it. You know, when you were at the kind of peak of your business, the catering school, you know, sitting on these boards as well, for instance, how how have you found attitudes to you as a woman in those places? Well, I mean, in a way, I've always been lucky because I've always been self-employed and that meant that I could um, set the ethos of the company and I could decide that, you know, <laughs> um, we would never do split shifts. You know, restaurant, restaurant workers often have to work, you know, lunch and dinner, which means it's a terribly long day. I, would, I could make the rules and, of course, I could make the rules for myself. So when I started to have children, I then didn't work at weekends because I could, I could fix it. So really, if you're self-employed, you, you don't suffer as much as you, of a glass ceiling as you do if you're in a big company where, you know, you're battling against the prejudices of people above you. But, I mean, there were instances where I realised how utterly prejudiced the world of food was. For example, when I had the cookery school and I was trying to get our students to get work experience in top restaurants, and what I found was all the restaurants who were owner-owned small chef's business like Anton Mossiman or Albert Roux or Michel Roux or, or the sort of top owner chef patron, they would love to have our cooks, whether they're boys or girls, because they knew that they were well-trained and they were like bees around a honey pot at exam time. They wanted to hire our, our people. But the big hotels who were full of old-fashioned chefs who just didn't want women in the kitchen... And I went to see the guy at the Savoy, chap called Trompetto, and he started telling me that he couldn't ever have, he would never have women over his dead body. And I thought he would be saying, they, you know, the usual God. excuse I'd heard many times before, oh, women distract the men from the job, they'll get pregnant, they can't lift a stock pot. You know, well, nobody can lift a stock pot. You need two people to do it, a big, heavy stock pot, whether you're a man or a woman. And um, so I was ready with my answers, but he didn't say any of that. What he said was, at a certain time of the months, they curdle the mayonnaise. <laughs> and I said, what? And he said, yeah. He said, they, cur they curdle the mayonnaise at a certain time of the month. 
And then he backed it up by saying in, in, in France, the, um, the mushroom growers would never let women into the sheds because they would prevent it at a certain time of the month because they would stop the mushroom spores germinating. And you know, I, I said this is sort of this is witchcraft. This is medieval nonsense. But he um, was absolutely determined, and you know, it took me a long time before he got took a woman in the kitchen. So there was there was a lot of prejudice. And I remember when I was on the British Railways board, I actually heard one of the secretaries of the um, to the board. Somebody asked him, "What's it like having a woman on the board?" And he said, oh, it's very good. He said, I always put the um, accounts past Prue, and if she understands them, anybody would understand them. <laughs> and I, my job was to be the dumb blonde who could perhaps not understand the, the finances. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Prue, let's talk about your adult change now. The biggest change that you went through as an adult. And I can imagine it's hard to choose because there's so many. I've been through a lot, but the most joyous one, most joyous one was... My second marriage, which I'm still on, um, John laughs because I call him my current husband. But I love my, <laughs> my first husband to bits, and I love my second husband. And, and I was 70 when I met him, and so what a piece of luck. I mean, not many women of 70 meet a, you know, a really wonderful man, and, and he is just divine. And so... Um, and we're very happy. So that's been a huge change. And I remember when I told my son, because obviously they'd met John by the time we decided to get married. We'd been together about five years. And um, so one day I thought <coughs> we decided we were going to get married. So I said to my son, I was walking with him in the garden, and I thought this is my... So I said, um, darling, you know what? John and I are going to be, get married. And he said, well done, Mum. <laughs> I said... <laughs> Well done. How about saying John's a lucky chap? <laughs> Obviously, he said, well done, Mark. as if I'd caught a big fish, you know, which I had. <laughs> How did you meet John? Um, I met it. I just met him in somebody else's house, you know, um, and he he turned up a couple of days later in my house with a suggestion that we should go for a walk. 
that we should, you know, because he had dogs and I had dogs. And um, so we did. It was quite funny because I was just walking out to have a walk with my secretary. We were going to walk around the fields. And he was at the door and he had a little card which he was going to push through the paper thing just saying, you know, um, I know where you live. Why don't we have a walk together um, sometime? And he thought I had gone off to Canada because I told him I was going to Canada, but I hadn't left yet. Anyway, when I opened the door, there he was. And at first I didn't recognise him. He was on a what I thought was a quad bike. It turned out to be a Harley Davidson um, tri- a tricycle, you know, a Harley Davidson motorbike yeah. with two, two wheels at the back. Yeah. Um, but I'm not really, know nothing about bikes or mechanics or anything. Anyway, so I said, well, why don't you come for a walk now? So we walked around this muddy field, the three of us, and Francisca, my PA, said that she felt immediately like a gooseberry. <laughs> so as soon as we got home and I said, let's have a drink, she scarped. And then I remember sitting in the sitting room with John, walking up and down, talking to me about, um, about Alexander the Great and his travels and history and all sorts of that. And I was thinking, you know, I should be interested in all this. I should be listening to everything he's saying because it's really interesting. But what I was actually doing, thinking, you are really fanciful. <laughs> oh, he is so handsome. He is so delicious. Like having watched him on the TV show and having watched both of you, you, you just you just look so happy you seem so happy and I mean and what a bit of luck you know because my first husband was so different he was absolutely wonderful he was a writer very reclusive didn't ever want to see anybody and so and I'm quite gregarious so that could have been a problem but it wasn't because I was in London three days a week and of course or four days a week and I was living a really gregarious life in London because I was a restaurateur I was having dinner with friends and I was very busy with lots of business stuff so I I had a ton of friends in London and a very social life which he didn't really care for and then when I went home for weekends all I wanted was to have scrambled eggs in front of the telly because I was really tired by the end of the week so that it all worked perfectly but what I hadn't realized is when he died I would have no friends because we didn't know any neighbors because he never wanted to know any neighbors um, he really was uh, quite reclusive. He liked his own friends, um, a few that he'd had for years, and he liked the family. He liked the family to come. But apart from that, I really didn't know anybody much. I knew some women because I had not wanted to be one of those people who live in the country and, and take no notice of village life. So I would help with, you know, flowers for the church or or, or the WI. I'd make jam or something or other. So I would try, but because I was busy, I, I wasn't very good at it. So when he died, I was really, really lonely. So I just worked harder. I was miserable because Rain had died. And I just got stuck into more and more work. And then I met John. And so, bit of luck, really. And, and how, long, how long were you after your first husband died and you met John? About eight years. But I did actually have an affair with a wonderful man after four years. After four years, I went to a dinner party and I met a bunch of people and it was quite funny because, you know, when you're a single woman, A, you don't get invited to many um, dinner parties and if you do, there are probably two other single women there and 
some friend is being really nice, knocking off all the people that he, he feels he or she feels she owes and she ought to have to dinner. So she, you know, there's this. So you, so you find yourself at dinner and you, if you're sitting next to a man, it's probably somebody else's husband whose wife's in hospital or it's somebody who's single for a very good reason, like he's just awful. <laughs> or, you know, it's... Uh, so... Anyway, I was having rather fun because I'm afraid I'd had a few drinks, you see. And, and what happened was the the host said, there was three, three women, all single. We were all talking about how we preferred to be single. And I was saying, you know, I wouldn't want to have a husband because I don't, you know, it's just lovely not having crumbs in the bed and not having to come home and, you know, apologise for my train being late or feel guilty about not having made the supper on time because my husband was a great one for having everything on time and um, somebody else one of the other women piped up and said but there are advantages of a guy what we need is it would be lovely to have somebody to take the rubbish out and to carry the bags and to go to the cinema with and to do nothing with I mean it would be nice to have a walker so the three of us were agreeing that we wanted a walker and then I got a bit full of booze and said, actually, very specifically, I want somebody who is Jewish in his 70s, a musician and gay. Those four things. <laughs> and so everybody said to me, well, why do you want somebody who's Jewish? You're not Jewish, are you? And I said, well, yes, I do, because in my experience, most Jewish people are very interested in the arts and in food and in politics and all things I'm interested in, but they're not interested in sport. And so that suits me fine. And then I would like him to be 70 because I'm in my 60s and if I meet somebody in their 70s, they'll think I'm quite young, you see. So I thought that's a good idea. And then I thought, and they said, um, well, why a musician? And I said, because I don't know anything about music and I'd really love to have somebody who would teach me about music. So I need a musician. And then, and of course, I want him to be gay because I'm done with all that. You know, I'm 66, 66 I don't you know. He's got to be gay, so, you know, that'd be fine. And so one of the guys there, quite a famous publicist, anyhow, he said to me, I tell you what, I'll, I'll find you this perfect man and I'll, um, I'll advertise and I'll look after all the responses. In those days, you put an advertisement in the back of the telegraph in the small print, you know. And so, you know, I was drunk enough to agree to this. <laughs> And of course, the next morning I decided I didn't, I couldn't go through with it. So he was very cross with me because he was looking forward to doing it. But I said, you know, no, no, you know, I was mad. Of course, I don't want to do that. But then, a few weeks later, I went to Lanzarote to see an old friend. And I fell in love with him. And he was a pianist, so there was the musician. He was only one quarter Jewish. But the genes are very strong, you know, because he loved music and food. <laughs> yeah. And then he was in his 70s. And thank God he wasn't gay. <laughs> because I discovered that I still quite liked all that. So there we were. And I, we had four years together. And it was a real roller coaster because a lot of it was wonderful. We were, build, we were trying to build a a concert hall in Lanzarote where he had a house and he wanted to turn an old camel house into a concert hall which I got stuck into and um, helped him with 
And we had a we had a lot of good times together, but he was bipolar, which meant that every now and again he would be absolutely impossible. And, uh, you know, I'm still friends with him, but um, I couldn't have lived with him. So, I mean, I'm just really glad I left where I did because then about, you know, a year later I met John. And if I'd been with, if, with Ernest, I'd never been able to hook up with John. Yeah. Prue, before we go, I just have two more questions, if that's okay. And this one could be really annoying and you might be cursing me under your breath, but so feel free to just tell me to feck off. And you must be asked this a million times, but what is like, what is your absolute archetypal favourite meal? If you could only choose one, what would it be? I am asked this a lot and I always think that it's a difficult question because it depends what I'd had for lunch. I mean, if this (laughs) is my last meal, you know, ever, um... And I was, you know, on death row. I certainly wouldn't want to have a repeat of what I had for lunch. And I, so I, but m- mostly I like very comforting, simple food. I like um, sausage and mash and things like that. But they have to be really beautiful sausages and really good mash. And I also like, I mean, if I was on death row, so I'd probably like something like cassoulet. You know, it's a basically a stew with beans and wonderful um, duck or lamb or lo- a long, slow-cooked, delicious, mm. rich stew of some sort. So a cassoulet, probably. And followed by, I mean, when I got married, when John and I got married, we went to a restaurant with our two friends who were the witnesses. We were in Scotland and there were just the four of us. And... I said, the waiter said, what do you want for your first course? And I said, I'll have oysters, because it was an oyster bar, and I love oysters. And then he said, what do you want for your main course? And I said, more oysters. (laughs) So I had (laughs) oysters for first course, oysters for second course, and then frikrotat and custard. And I regret to say ice cream, because the guy said to me, do you want ice cream, custard, or cream on your frikrotat? And I said, can I have all three? I'm getting married. <laughs> I can do what I like. So I did. Um, and Prue, of all your achievements, of which we have established, there are so many. What are you proudest of? I think I'm most proud of the fourth plinth sculpture thing. Because it did take five years to get that on, to, to get it through all the planning permissions and so forth. And it wasn't something that I would that I was trained to do, you know, to campaign for art. But the point is that with any luck, it will last forever because the public love it. It changes every year. Artists love it because they get a chance to sort of show their sculptures in the most iconic square in England, Trafalgar Square. Um, and so, and it's now it's now run by the Mayor of London. At the first, the RSA ran it when I was chairman, but we passed it on to... Um, to the mayor of London and any mayor would be mad to get rid of it because it's so popular and it works mm. so well mm. so I hope it'll go on forever and I mean nobody knows that, that I was the person behind it but um, I know that and I'm proud of it yeah well the listeners to this podcast know it too um, Prue what an absolute pleasure to have this time with you I really appreciate it um, thank you so much Well, Annie, I've really enjoyed it. I'm sorry I yatter so much. Oh, man, Prue Leith. 
I could listen to her yattering all day. I love her. And that is like her on and off air, just so you know. There's literally no difference between the Prue you heard on the mic and the Prue in real life. We've been emailing and I'd really like to be her friend, to be honest. Also, I just love the idea of Prue kind of being the manifestation of that fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. There's something so colourful and brilliant and curious and progressive about Prue's personality. She's a breath of fresh air. So it makes sense. It just makes so much sense that she would be the person behind bringing contemporary art into Trafalgar Square. Right. I'm hoping next week we're going to have a finale of all finales for you. So I'm not going to say goodbye, goodbye for the season now, but I'm going to say goodbye for this week. My producer is Frank Palmer. Thank you for listening. Please do spread this podcast around. Tell your friends, uh, like and subscribe. And let me know on Instagram as well, at Annie McManus. Let me know there what you think of this episode. Sending love, lads. Bye. Bye.